You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on the 7th day of April 2012. And once again, I would like to welcome everyone to the podcast and invite you all to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as interviews, articles, and videos that I've created over the past five years. And also in the podcasts tab, you'll be able to find the show notes for today's episode. And as I mentioned earlier this week on Corbett Report Radio, I would just like to remind everyone that today's issue of the International Forecaster, of course, Bob Chapman's newsletter that goes out twice a week, today's issue's editorial, the first uh, few pages of the issue, will be penned by yours truly, James Corbett. So might I humbly suggest that if you're not subscribed to the International Forecaster, this might be a good time to start. As I mentioned on the radio broadcast earlier this week, Bob Chapman is looking to ease up on the gas pedal a little bit as he's, I believe, 76 years old this year. So he is uh, cutting back on the number of interviews he's doing. And he has offered me the opportunity to start writing uh, the Saturday editorials for the International Forecaster, an absolutely humbling opportunity. So once again, I am uh, owe a lot to Bob for that. So big thank you to Bob Chapman for that opportunity. And once again, I hope you will take advantage of that. And of course, stay tuned to the internationalforecaster.com. And on that note, I am going to see if, uh, if this uh, relationship continues. And if I continue writing the Saturday editorials, perhaps I will, Bob Chapman will allow me to publish that out f- uh, via my newsletter for my uh, subscribers. So for everyone who is subscribed and is paying 100 Japanese yen a month or more if they want to, in order to get the Corporate Report newsletter, you might be getting a weekly, uh, quite detailed news analysis in the future. We'll see how that works out with Bob Chapman. I think we're just testing the waters right now. But I am going to fight for that. And at any rate, if you uh, have not yet subscribed to the Corbett Report, I might humbly suggest that you also do that because it is what keeps this podcast going and growing. And on that note, we have even more information than usual to get through today. So let's get straight into today's episode. Welcome to episode 225 of the Corbett Report podcast, Still Listening to the Enemy. And by way of explaining the central conceit of today's episode, I would ask those long-term listeners in the audience to cast their minds back almost one year ago to the 28th of May 2011 and episode 188 of this podcast called Listening to the Enemy, in which we uh, began this uh, this process of listening in on enemy communiques, as it were. And for those of you who might be newer to The Corbett Report and are not familiar with that podcast episode, I would wholeheartedly advise you to go back and listen to it. As I mentioned back in episode 200, when we were looking back at some of the previous work here on CorbettReport.com, I did mention at that time that episode 188 was one of the most downloaded episodes that I had had up to that point on on the servers. So it is certainly uh, one that's struck a chord with a lot of listeners. And I understand why. A lot of very interesting information presented in that episode, including Hillary Clinton admitting to losing the info war and uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski fearing the global awakening and, uh, and James Goldsmith, the globalist who came in from the cold, as it were, breaking rank with the globalists in order to expose exactly what globalization was all about and exactly how it would play out. And he was exactly right about that, wasn't he? 
again, lots of very interesting information in that episode. And as I tried to demonstrate in that episode, it is very important for us not to get lost in the echo chamber of the internet and only and at all times to get our information from the alternative media. Of course, we have to be listening to what the, the people on the other side of this debate are saying and how they're saying it. And there are many, many different things that we can learn from that. Of course, what they're thinking and how they're acting, but also even the way that they present this information can teach us something. So we're going to be looking at some more examples of some of the uh, the insiders, the so-called would-be self-proclaimed elites, and some of the things that they're propounding these days. And in order to do that, we'll be listening to some selected clips that I've lined up for you. But I think when when we take a look at these clips and when we put them all in perspective, I think if there's any theme to today's episode, it is probably that all of these clips in some way relate to the 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 power of the fact that these globalists are very much out in the open with their agenda and what it is they're planning. And often when we're presenting this type of information to an incredulous public who's dumbed down on Dancing with the Stars and really only follows the uh, the basic headlines to get their news, they often have that incredulous attitude of, well, if this type of thing, if this global government and everything was really being set up, they'd just be out there talking about it. And of course, the frustrating thing about this is, is that they are talking about this at great length and at great great detail out there in the public so that anyone who is interested in it can see it. But it's almost a magical ability that a lot of these people have to put the most extraordinary statements in the most ordinary, plain, boring, button-down, three-piece suit language that makes it just sort of glaze over so that people might hear it and not really ever stop to question what they're really being told. So let's do that today. Let's stop. Let's question what we're being told. And let's not get, not get lost by the fact that these people are wearing three-piece suits and that they look so uh, so respectable when they're delivering this really bombshell information. So let's start looking at some specific examples, and there are quite a few to go through today. And uh, once again, exactly as I did in episode 188, I would once again really exhort people to keep their eye on Fareed Zakaria of CNN. And he has the show GPS Global Public Square. And as I as I recommended to people at that time, I still recommend it right now. I really do think that you should be subscribed to the, that podcast or, or be watching the uh, the the actual show as it airs on CNN. You can even buy uh, copies of the videos on iTunes, but uh, I don't think I could recommend that. But certainly you can get the free podcast or whatever, because Fareed Zakaria is very much a media figure who is bringing this type of these types of uh, viewpoints to the public's attention. And he's doing that on a weekly basis. And every single week, there is a fascinating guest who is very much on the inside of this elite club to which you and I are not members. And whether that's the the foreign minister of Pakistan or or people like uh, Kissinger or Brzezinski or Osborne, the, uh, the exchequer of the UK government. I mean, also, every single week, there's a very interesting person with some interesting perspectives, obviously from the other side of the debate than you and I might be on, but still worth listening to for a variety of reasons. So just as one, one tiny example of that, let's listen to a clip from a recent episode where Richard N. Haas, our good old friend, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, makes the most startling statement about the UN and the role of the international community in this day and age that once again just gets glossed over because it's just presented as just everyday apple pie kind of blasé stuff that should just be passed over in, a, in the course of a reasonable debate. But when you stop and think about it, it is really amazing. 
what Richard N. Haas, president of the Council of Foreign Relations, reveals in this clip. Do you think that Putin is a, uh, a, a, a person with whom the United States can continue to deal and that he will be a, a likely cooperative partner on some issues like Iran and things? You know, because there's this whole idea the Obama administration had, which was we're going to reset relations with Russia, not because we love them, but because they have a veto in the Security Council, because we need them for a bunch of things, and we can establish a good working relationship. Do you think that that's likely? I think the administration was right to try the reset. It's probably now going to be necessary to somewhat reset the reset. (laughs) Putin's a spoiler. And when people face the kinds of choices Anne-Marie described at home, and I think it's probably 64 or more likely he goes towards repression Mm. than than real opening, the tendency is to use foreign policy a bit to vent and to distract and the rest. So my hunch is Putin is even less of a partner moving forward than he has been to date, which, by the way, is not much of a partner to, uh, to begin with. I think this is going to be a rough relationship. We're not talking about going back to the Cold War. But essentially, the United States is going to have to tackle a lot of these geopolitical challenges. Syria is an indication, I think, Iran going forward without much help from Russia. Probably, by the way, just one less. It might mean less and less role for the United Nations. If China and Russia are not there as partners in the U.N., increasingly multilateralism is going to have to be a little bit narrower and without the formality of the U.N. Once again, just incredible information when you really stop and think about it, because here Richard N. Haas is admitting that the UN is truly nothing other than a tool in the toolkit of the globalists. So exactly as in the case that he's talking about with Syria, because the uh, the Russians and the Chinese don't go along with it, because they can't get the mandate through the Security Council, because it doesn't work out for them in that case, disregard it, form a different uh, alliance uh, of the willing, the friends of Syria, or whatever Orwellian name you want to put on it, and use that as your uh, excuse. That That's the consensus of the international community. But of course, any time that, uh, that the UN does work out and they do get their agenda and plans through it, suddenly it's, it's a legitimate body. So, for example, the R2P that we were examining in last week's episode, Responsibility to Protect, well, that went through the UN process and that got voted in and, and that passed in 2005. So, so that's legitimate. That's great. That shows that the UN is, is this legitimate functioning international body that represents the will of the people of the planet, even though you and I have absolutely zero say whatsoever in those deliberations or what they aside. But uh, but in Syria, it doesn't work out for them. Just disregard it. It, it doesn't matter. It's, it's a tool that doesn't work. It's like a, a hammer for a problem that doesn't require a hammer. So let's so let's find a screwdriver instead. And uh, and again, we see that time after time after time. So for example, Libya, well, there you go. It, it gets the UN Security Council resolution. Therefore, it has legitimate legitimacy and the authority to uh, to give this, this power to this international humanitarian bombardment. But in another case, uh, UNESCO uh, doesn't give uh, or it gives uh, Palestine a seat at the table as a full member state. Therefore, the U.S. defunds them and UNESCO is now discredited. Or the International Criminal Court decides that uh, Pal- uh, Israel cannot be tried for war crimes during Operation Cast Lead because Palestinians essentially aren't people. They're, they don't have a state. So therefore, the International Criminal Court won't even look at the war crimes committed during that operation. And uh, and so that's that's fine and dandy with uh, with uh, the the U.S. and whatever they want to do and people like Richard N. Haas. Once again, it is nothing other than a tool to be used or just put kept in the toolkit, depending on what the situation is and whether the U.N. goes along with the agenda that they want. So keep that in mind next time they try to legitimize legitimate whatever it else that they try to do in the future in the name of the U.N. that. They will only ever draw attention to what the UN is doing when it works in their favor. And when it doesn't, they will just discard it and they will form their own little club 
and uh, and basically make sure that everyone uh, gets on board, but with threats and bribery and carrots and sticks and all of that. So uh, so it absolutely is just a complete farce, and he is admitting it that there, and he's explaining the farce. But once again, I guarantee 99% of the viewers out there just had that wash over them without really thinking about what it was he's saying. And I would suggest you, uh, if you can, find the uh, the full clip. I think it's still up on the podcast feed there. If you can find that full clip, uh, you can hear Anne-Marie Slaughter, the uh, very appropriately named Anne-Marie Slaughter, uh, telling Richard Haas uh, as an aside there, uh, which uh, was maybe not meant to be recorded on a microphone, but you just said, oh, I agree, I agree, yes. So, um, so absolutely, I think there is a globalist consensus about what the UN is and how it's supposed to function. While we're on the Fareed Zakaria GPS kick, let's take a listen to a different episode in which he was talking to none other than Heinz Kissinger. And, uh, and once again, Henry Kissinger making an extremely extraordinary statement in that dull, bland, professorly way that he has that, uh, once again, probably a lot of people didn't really understand the implications of what it was he was trying to put across. Okay, so I've, I've got to ask you about the Republican Party and, and its foreign policy and its candidates, because um, if you listen to, to candidates on the campaign trail now uh, on issues like Russia, on Iran, on Israel, they're taking very strident positions, very tough, uh, in ways that, frankly, I think make it difficult for the United States to pursue a, a bipartisan foreign policy. This is not a new phenomenon for you. The Republican Party uh, in, in uh, 1976, you know, the convention, you know, Reagan rode to power criticizing you. That was one of his, one of the, the, the uh, most spirited attacks he would make on campaign trails and in the convention. Do you think that the, that, uh, the, the Republicans right now are putting forward just campaign rhetoric or do they actually believe what they're saying? Well, uh I don't normally like to discuss partisan things on uh, television or uh, publicly. I will support the Republicans, but that doesn't mean that I support every argument that every candidate uh, uh, makes. And when you mention Reagan, uh, during the campaign, he was uh, advocating some things on China which were at the antithesis of what Nixon and I uh, had done. Uh, but even before he came into office, he uh, asked me to send messages that uh, he would stick to the existing commitments. And as president... Uh, he conducted a foreign policy that I totally supported. So I... Uh, so you're saying the, the, what, what no, they say I, on the campaign I, trail no, doesn't, I have doesn't confidence mean... confidence that the Republican candidates, at least the ones I know personally, uh, that they will examine the issues from the point of view of Americans having responsibility for the security of the country and the future of the world. And then I think they will come to conclusions around which a nonpartisan and bipartisan consensus has evolved over the decades. And that, uh, of course, there are specific points on which uh, they may be neuralgic and they have to be taken seriously. But on the main lines of the foreign policy, as I described it here, 
I think there will be uh, a uh, consensus, not on every tactical point. And so I'm quite confident, even though some of the things that are being said, uh, I would not have drafted. You think it's just campaign rhetoric? I don't think it's just campaign rhetoric, but I think uh, when you are a candidate, uh, the uh, emotions of the moment and the emotions of your advisors uh, have one set of impacts. When you are in the Oval Office and you know that you're part of a history and that uh, that the uh, lives of millions of people are affected, you take a more comprehensive uh, look. And the point is not whether they agree with me, but on certain issues, uh, serious people of both parties have studied them for many decades. And while there's always a margin for change, there is really a margin for total reversal. And, uh, and so, and in that sense, I have every expectation that Uh, whoever emerges from the presidency will operate on that basis on either side. Wow. Just wow. Just a stunning admission. And it's not stunning in the sense that it's surprising to you or I. Uh, Certainly, this is a point that I've been making for quite a long time. And of course, many, many other people have besides. It's a point that, in fact, is, is starting to seep into the public consciousness that there is no left and right in in American politics or in in various uh, different polities around the world, that this uh, this divide that they have and this political charade that they do every four years or whatever your particular country country's voting system might be, is really just a selection between pre-selected candidates that makes no difference whatsoever because on the key foreign policy points and on the key domestic priorities, the the fundamental underlying agenda never changes, that there is a consistency there between the uh, the left candidate and the right candidate, so that really it's about choosing between Coke and Pepsi. Well, how about neither? And, uh, and this is uh, something that we say all the time, but here it is from from Heinz Kissinger himself. So uh, so there you go. If you ever need uh, some ammo in your uh, in your info weapon in order to convince somebody who might uh, be skeptical about that, about that point, about the no difference between left and right, well, there you go. It's, it's no less an authority than Henry Kissinger saying it, so it must be true, right? Well, again, uh, just stunning, uh, uh, stunning guests and stunning information coming out on a weekly basis from Fried Zakaria and GPS. So just as one more example before we move on, let's listen to a recent episode where he was talking to a an author called T.R. Reed, who wrote a book called The Healing of America, A Global Quest for Better, Cheaper and Fairer Healthcare, talking about the healthcare debate in the U.S. And I think a pretty interesting little note that he uh, he drops into this conversation that I want to point out to all of you. You took your uh, bad shoulder. Yeah, it only goes this high. Uh, around the world. Yeah. And where did you find that if you had, you, you know, if you could choose where you could, you could live to deal with that yeah. bad shoulder, where would you have chosen? Well, I would have gotten great care in the United States of America because I have very good insurance. Um... In France, God, the care was fabulous. You don't wait. The cost of the procedure I needed was one-seventh as much as it would have been in America. I would have gotten it in three days. 
uh, Japan, I was sitting in the doctor's office, and uh, this is the only doctor who did this around the world. He's looking at the computer while he's talking to me. He says, well, I could do this for your shoulder. I could do that. And he says, well, maybe I'll do an operation. It would have cost about one-tenth of the price in America. And he said, I probably can't do it tomorrow, but maybe next week someday. You know, so uh, I got very good recommendations and very good care in many countries. Interestingly, in Britain, where the government, that's socialized medicine, the government pays for the insurance. Uh, that doctor said to me, go home. He said, you're living a good life. You're a successful reporter. You don't need a new shoulder. We're not going to provide it. Interesting. They just do less in Britain. What they do, they do fine. But they don't do all the stuff we do. Well, that was an interesting little plug for the socialized uh, healthcare systems around the world, wasn't it? Talking about how wonderful it is and how great a care he received in so many different places. It puts really puts the U.S. to shame that it can be done so quickly and easily and cheaply in so many places around the world. Well, except for Britain, where, yeah, they just told him to go home. They're not going to do anything to him because he doesn't need it. Well, that's kind of a bizarre attitude for a doctor who has supposedly taken the Hippocratic Oath to uh, to give, isn't it? To, be, uh, to, to do to the best of his ability what he can to improve the health of his patient. No, let's not do that. Let's just decide for the patient what is best for his quality of life. And if it doesn't reach that uh, over that bar, then, well, we'll do nothing because you don't really need it. And uh, who gets to be judge, jury, and uh, executioner on, the, on that particular pronouncement? Well, the doctor himself. Why not? Because he's an expert. So I guess he gets to decide what you need and what you don't need for your life. Pretty, pretty amazing, pretty shocking thing, really, to think about. But of course, uh, Fareed doesn't pick up on that part. If you'll notice, if you keep listening to the conversation, it's all about how terrible uh, the U.S. is, which may or may not be the case. I'm not here to, to get into that argument particularly, but certainly it is uh, interesting that the uh, the full aspects and ramifications of what uh, what T.R. Reid just slips in at the end there aren't really delved into, and for obvious reasons, because they lead along the lines of uh, some very disturbing things that we can point to in other cases. Again, from the UK just earlier this week, surgery bans elderly patient over her carbon footprint. And uh, yes, I'll invite you to go read that story. You you can't make it up. It's really crazy. But yes, a doctor wrote to this grandmother who was who was going to a, a surgery and uh, and she was getting checked up and and basically they said uh, we don't want you coming here anymore because it uses too much carbon for you to travel across town to get here. So you should go to a doctor that's closer to you. Uh, just I mean, where do you even begin parsing that one? Oh, it's an incredible head scratcher, but there it is. I mean, this is the carbon eugenics world that we're moving into, and that really is the nexus of so many different trains of thought, isn't it? That's that's the junction where they all come together. There's there's carbon, and there's there's eugenics and uh, bioethics all in one neat little package. So uh, so check into that story and see what you make of it. I think it's uh, particularly telling for a number of reasons. But uh, but on that note of uh, bioethics, why don't we move? over to another line of exploration as we continue listening to the enemy and various things that are going on behind enemy lines. And for anyone who saw my recent eye-opener report on life and death bioethics as crypto eugenics, you might know where this is heading. For those who haven't watched it yet, if you're not a member of BoilingFrogsPost.com and subscribe to that very valuable information resource, 
I would suggest that you do so so that you can get the uh, full eye-opener reports as soon as they're released. Otherwise, you have to wait three weeks for the full report. But uh, if you don't have a membership and can't get one at this time, then please just go to the transcript of this week's eye-opener. Of course, the transcript is always posted along with the preview video, the complete transcript for the entire video with all of the source documentation for that video. So uh, so you don't have to wait any time at all for that. All the information is there 100% freely available. And if you go there and uh, I, I would just, I mean, it's a point that I've, I've alluded to before and I've talked about in a general terms before that bioethics is just another form of crypto eugenics. The eugenicists who believe that they are genetically superior to you and I and thus they have the right to rule over us and to weed our genes out of the gene pool are, have just found different ways to do this. And it doesn't look like Nazis and it doesn't goose step. But if, it, uh, if it's still eugenics uh, by any other name, then it's still just eugenics. And we've talked talked about the ways that that's been fed into the overpopulation fear-mongering as a way of slipping eugenics in the back door. And we've talked about, obviously, the environmental movement and carbon footprints and all of this as another way of getting eugenics back into public discourse. But bioethics, it's something I've alluded to, is basically eugenics by another name. And, uh, and this report that I did, I really hope you'll pick it up. I hope you'll take a look at this information because it spells it out absolutely 100% black and white, cannot be refuted. Bioethics is very much founded on and springs from eugenics. And I do not say that lightly. So just reading from that report, which, which really does spell it out. In 1968, the Population Council and the Rockefeller family provided funds for Daniel Callahan to found the Hastings Center, one of the earliest and most influential of the academic bioethics research institutes, boasting many of the leading bioethicists as fellows, including Ezekiel Emanuel, yes, Rahm Emanuel's brother, and Peter Singer. The link is made even more transparent by the fact that the founding director of the Hastings Center, Theodosius Dobzhansky, was a chairman of the American Eugenics Society from 1964 to 1973, while Hastings founder Callahan became a director of the Eugenics Society from 1987 to 1992. Once again, the facts are right there in front of everyone's face. The premier think tank, the first think tank, the one that is still regarded as the most distinguished think tank that all the famous bioethicists come from, was founded by a a vowed eugenicist and a member of the Eugenics Society, and its first director was the chairman of the Eugenics Society. Once again, the the dots are right there. It's like a connect the dots where there are only two dots. There is no other way to connect them. Eugenics, bioethics. There is a straight line. There is historical continuity. And what does this all mean? Well, for people who don't even know what bioethics is, again, I would recommend that report to you. But basically, this is the priestly class of academics who claim to have the authority to be able to speak and pronounce on these sticky issues that we get into when we start talking about modern biological sciences and specifically medical sciences and all of the crazy technologies that are coming out and which really are more and more a part of the world we're living in. How should we deal with them? What kinds of uh, stances should we take on this? Well, this is what the bioethicists claim to be able to pronounce on. And as people like uh, Tony Chaitkin of the Executive Intelligence Review have pointed out, that uh, really the Hastings Center and the work that they were doing in the early years was all about just basically mainstreaming discourse about euthanasia and getting end-of-life care to be talking about uh, pulling the plug on granny in order to save a few teachers, as Bill Gates likes to go around promoting these days. 
So once again, it's all about this idea of demeaning and devaluing life and talking and weighing it out, the scales in terms of money and things like this so that we can all become engaged in this debate about how best to, to kill off people that we don't find a burden on society. And of course, it's uh, uh, people say, oh, that's just a slippery slope argument. That doesn't mean anything. Well, exactly like in the abortion argument, um, there are people who say, well, you know, it, it, it will lead to the demeaning and devaluing of life. And people say, oh, that's just silly. Well, of course, now we have the, uh, the bioethicist coming out with their research papers about how, well, if we if we have abortions, why don't we just carry that on till after the baby is born? Yes, why not the first the first year of life? It's still not a viable being by itself. It, we can kill them just like we can kill a fetus. And again, you I mean, you can't make this stuff up. This is what is now being argued by the bioethicists. And again, it's just part of the mainstreaming of the discourse and getting uh, getting it spoken of in this professorial way to get us all to go along with it. So once again, it's extremely important to keep all of this in mind and to keep our eye on the bio bioethicist ball, as it were. So on that note, why don't we turn our eye to the Hastings Center, or perhaps lend our ear to the Hastings Center, this false front for the eugenicists, founded by a eugenicist and uh, with its founding director, also a eugenicist, members of the Eugenic Society, in fact, chairs of the Eugenic Society. And let's uh, let's see what they're talking about. So, of course, they have a uh, they have a website which you can go to to find out more about what they're talking and thinking about. And they also have a YouTube if you'd like to see some videos. And on that note, let's turn to a video that they have up on their YouTube channel. It was posted on November 19th, 2010. And it's called Synthetic Life, the New Industrial Revolution? Question mark. And it's a speech given by Gregory Kabnick, who is a research scholar at the Hastings Center. And he's talking about this uh, bioethics in regards to synthetic biology. So the first question many people might have, what is synthetic biology? Well, just reading from the, uh, the Milktoast Wikipedia entry, synthetic biology is a new area of biological research and technology that combines science and engineering. It encompasses a variety of different approaches, methodologies, and disciplines with a variety of definitions. The common goal is the design and construction of new biological functions and systems not found in nature. Which, uh, which I guess gives the general gist of, it, of what's really being talked about here, but I'm not sure it really goes to the, the heart of the matter and what's really so interesting and, well, creepy about it. So for that, why don't we turn to a, uh, an article that was posted on stratrisks.com back in December of 2011, DNA Hackers, Synthetic Biology, Weaponized Virus, Zero-Day Exploit to Infect Your Brain? Question mark. It's via Computer World, and it says, quote, From the Let's Get Futuristically Freaky Department, future hacking crimes could take a de decidedly sinister twist. Not hacking to breach systems, but brains, bodies, and behaviors. This DNA hacking goes way beyond potentially using police bees to bust biohackers or even storing unhackable data in a box of bioencrypted bacteria. It's not science fiction to hack insulin pumps or to use jamming signals to stop hackers from lethal pacemaker attacks, but now bioengineers and security futurists are warning that the day is coming when criminals and bioterrorists hunt for vulnerabilities that will give a new meaning to zero-day exploits. In the future, a weaponized virus will aim to infect you, your brain and body biology, and not just your computer or mobile device. Just as you can personalize your computer and mobile devices, advances in synthetic biology are allowing DNA hackers to personalize biology so that we will be able to use a DNA printer that will, be able, that will allow us to print out our own treatments. Think of it as a patch you need to close a vulnerability on a system. In this case, you would download it, print it, and swallow the cure. 
Well, we'll end the quote there and you can continue reading there on Stratus.com about that aspect of synthetic biology. Yes, basically, this is talking about not just tampering with the genetic code of various beings, but actually in a significant way creating a genetic code that did not exist in nature before. This stems back, uh, a lot of the interest in this idea and this this technology stems back to an experiment that was first uh, conducted by Craig Venter, an interesting fellow in his own right that it might serve your interests to take a look at further. So you can go to the J. Craig Venter Institute at jcvi.org. And on the 20th of May of 2010, they had a press release, First Self-Replicating Synthetic Bacterial Cell, where they talked about creating a bacterial cell from a genome that they had constructed, literally synthetic life. And uh, that got quite a bit of attention in the media, as you would expect it would, because we're talking about some very, very important subjects here, really creating life um, in, a, in a key sense of, of what that means. So there's some debate in uh, synthetic biology circles about what really this is and whether it's truly something different of a kind uh, than something like genetic engineering or whether it's just sort of genetic engineering taken to a further extreme. And uh, you can go and listen to this full speech uh, at, at the Hastings Center about synthetic biology. It's it's quite fascinating. Uh, some of the, t- the ideas that they have for what can be done by manipulating the genome at this level is... Is quite interesting, uh, at turns fascinating and, and horrifying when you start to think of the implications. So just as a, an example of that, we'll turn to a part of the speech where uh, Mr. Kabnick uh, talks a little bit about some of the consequences of synthetic biology that have been imagined, some of the adverse, adverse cons- consequences and some of the bad things about this potential technology, including some interesting facts, for example, about cheese that I bet you didn't know. I don't know if this one really counts as uh, synthetic biology, but uh, certainly under some of the broader definitions that I was offering at the start, it would. Um, As you may know, uh, the production of hard cheese uh, involves um, an enzyme called chymosin, which is found in rennet, which is produced from the stomachs of calves, unweaned calves. It's an enzyme that the calves use to process the mother's milk. Uh, It it turns out that uh, it's possible to uh, take these cow genes and insert them into various other kinds of organisms, bacteria, uh, fungi, yeast, and uh, and then produce the chymosin that way. Actually, this slide is inaccurate. It says modified yeast to rennet to chymosin. It would skip the, uh, the rennet stage as well. It just produces the chymosin directly. And this was work that was done um, a decade or so ago, and it was approved by the FDA. And it's actually largely taken over the industry at this point. 80 to 90% of all the hard cheese that's uh, produced in the United States uh, relies on chymosin produced with, uh, th- by genetically modified organisms. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting, it's, I think I find this frankly a very uh, challenging application. This, I found this particular image on a website that said wine and cheese are said to be the purest and the most romantic link between humans and the earth. Well, so the question is, you know, uh, does this fact about how, how the cheeses are produced change your view of that? It's a, it's a very, very interesting question for me, and I'm not sure where I come down on it myself. 
So uh, when I was listing some of the possible applications, I said that uh, synthetic biologists are always looking for the, the killer apps. Well, there's a, another way of thinking about that phrase, killer app. There are a few kinds of uh, categories of risk. One large category has to do with ways that the technology could be deliberately misused. And this has already been proven possible. Uh, the, uh, the 1918 Spanish influenza virus was, has been reproduced in the lab. Polio, which is an RNA virus, has been reproduced in the lab. Smallpox has not, but it, it, it will be. At some point it will be, and at some point it will probably be possible to go on and produce bacterial pathogens. And it might even be possible to produce new kinds of pathogens. There was some work done in Australia some years ago on mousepox, which is um, related, pretty closely related apparently to smallpox. And it was tweaked in a few ways that made it a, a much more virulent, much more powerful killer uh, than unaltered mousepox had been. <clears throat> and there'd be a variety of different kinds of targets for this. It wouldn't necessarily just be humans. Agricultural targets might be the, the most effective uh, way of, of uh, attacking a country. So this is, is clearly possible to do this kind of thing, but there's a little bit of debate about the likelihood of it. Now, some think, well, terrorists have better weapons at their disposal than this. You can't, these things you couldn't really control. They might end up um, hurting those who wielded them as much as, as the intended targets. On the other hand, uh, one should probably never, never bank on the rationality <laughs> of a terrorist. <clears throat> Another question about the likelihood of this actually uh, uh, being put into use is it's not enough just to create the, the pathogen, you also have to have a way of weaponizing it. You have to have a way of distributing it. Well, I've heard synthetic biologists say, you know, that's, that's actually not that big a deal. All you need is 100 sort of versions of a suicide bomber, people who will infect themselves with something that is very, very contagious, and then uh, go out into the city and go to movies and ride the subway, and, and uh, you could have a real, real good epidemic going quite shortly. Well, if the knowledge that upwards of 90% of the hard cheeses produced in America are actually produced by recourse to genetically modified organisms didn't send sh shivers down your spine, then I would imagine that the bioterrorism angle and the idea of purpose-designed biological warfare instruments would uh, would certainly do the job of creeping you out a little bit. And again, if that's not good enough, well, you can start looking at uh, the gray goo type of scenario that he proposes as another form of disaster that could come with synthetic biology, bioerrorism, as he calls it. I think boring from a phrase from James Evan Pilato. But, uh, but at any rate, yes, lots of very important issues being raised by this field of study. And of course, when we start thinking about the way that uh, governments have always used uh, false flag terrorism and things of that sort to in order to kick off their wars and to start the next round of 
of uh, of craziness and insanity and the war of on terror and all of this kind of shenanigans that we've seen time and time again throughout history well to think of this type of technology in the hands of the very same types of people who are in, have been in charge of these governments for a long time well that's uh, that should send some shivers down the listener's spine as well so lots of very important things to think about when we talk about synthetic biology and i think that's been fairly well established by now but let's turn to a different part of that lecture in which the uh, the the good doctor here at the Hastings Center begins to start to start talking about the way that uh, bioethics can approach this and how the bioethicists these priestly uh, professorial types who have have come down from the clouds in order to solve all our problems when it comes to these moral quandaries what they have to say and what they think along these lines of these types of consequences of synthetic biology uh, there are issues that are yeah, basically consequentialist. They have to do with the outcomes, the risks, and the potential benefits. But you might also be concerned about synthetic biology on these intrinsic grounds, if you will. You might just see it as, as something that is in and of itself morally troubling. And so the question is, you know, what to make of this kind of concern? Could it... Could it is that a, a, a legitimate kind of, of concern to have uh, about synthetic biology? And could it lead to even to public policy restraining synthetic biology in some way? And uh, my, in a nutshell, my, my uh, conclusion that I, what I told the House was that, yes, this, this is a legitimate moral point, but it's not going to turn out to be something that should generate restrictive policy. And this I'm offering is somebody who's, who's uh, attracted toward, toward uh, um, not attracted to the, the engineering kind of mindset. Well, someone who's attracted to you know, a preservationist mindset. It seems to me that the challenge with this concern is to figure out how to articulate it. Uh, one way of, of of developing it will be as a kind of uh, religious, metaphysical, uh, uh, grounded concern. You know that that uh, we're doing something that is uh, prohibited in by God, as we understand God's commands. And I think that's I don't, I don't, I'm not going to argue with that, uh, but I, I think that those kinds of concerns. Um, are not very easily incorporated into public policy. There's a there's a, a it's it's there's a, a gap there between concerns that are explicitly grounded on religious positions and public policy. And it, it actually turns out that whether people who come to synthetic biology with a, uh, from a religious background are opposed to it. Uh, uh, the Catholic Church has officially uh, officially responded to the JCVI announcement that, that a synthetic cell had been created by saying, wow, this looks like an interesting line of work. They did not come out against it. Now, there's some work uh, done by the Woodrow Wilson Institute which suggests that uh, evangelical Christians are likelier to be just innately opposed to this line of work. If you develop this kind of concern not as grounded in religious positions, but just as a kind of moral point, and most of our moral arguments don't trace all the way back to metaphysical concerns. They're just, they're just 
uh, objections that we, you know, we, we try and get other people to see them the way we do. And we, we, many of us do have this kind of feeling about the natural world. We feel that uh, uh, species are to be uh, protected and preserved, wildernesses are to be protected and preserved, and so forth. But here, I, I think that the, this isn't gonna lead really to restrictive policy either, because the problems that you might envision if you have a preservationist mindset are gonna be covered by the consequentialist concerns. If synthetic biology leads to environmental destruction, then that would be reason to have this uh, intrinsic moral objection to it. But that kind of worry is also gonna be covered by sort of straightforward concerns about, about public health. Um, this, uh, I wanted to say something about this picture. I, I, I gave testimony at the house and then afterwards we were standing around, I had my, my bag on my shoulder and was about to leave and this guy suddenly uh, pointed at my hair and said, uh, I think you have a leaf in your hair. <laughs> I thought, oh, how perfect is that? Is my, my few minutes of fame and I haven't even managed to comb my hair appropriately. <laughs> And the idea that I would have a leaf in my hair seemed to be uh, sort of um, in keeping with, with, uh, with my own views about the moral concerns at stake. I also said at the beginning that the JCVI announcement was billed as, not just as a technical advance, but as a huge philosophical advance. And the, the philosophical advance was supposed to be that it showed once and for all that uh, vitalism the philosophical position known as vitalism had been proven wrong. Vitalism is, is the belief that living things aren't just material entities. They have some sort of non-material or, or spiritual uh, uh, thing going on in them as well, a soul or uh, you know, a spiritual essence. And what we now knew, according to folks at JCVI and um, some prominent bioethicists, including some friends of mine, was this is wrong because we, we just created a microbe in the lab. So now we knew, nope, nothing special about life. Life is just a puddle of chemicals uh, interacting in an organized way. But just as a matter of logic, this doesn't actually, doesn't actually follow. If there's a god who breathes some sort of of a microbial soul into bacteria when they replicate. That God is also perfectly capable of breathing that soul into a microbe when it's created in the lab. There was actually a, a, a very analogous question arose when people um, were debating some years ago uh, what had been established by making it possible to clone human beings. The question was, if you cloned a human being, would the human being have a soul? And you know, it was actually, you know, sort of seriously proposed by a few people in bioethics that actually, no, they wouldn't have souls. <laughs> but I think that's an extremely hard position to hold onto if you have a, you know, a, a person, moral being, responding to the world as we are, um, very much his or her own person, why wouldn't they have souls? Similarly, uh, microbes created in the lab 
would seem to have whatever special thing microbes that arise naturally would have. This got me thinking a little bit about, you know, what would, what would be the reaction to synthetic biology if it, if it hadn't been hyped quite the way it was? If JCVI hadn't said, we've created life, we've created a synthetic organism. What if they just said, we've created a genome and stuck it into a cell and it's survived? You know, maybe, maybe there wouldn't have been so much of a, uh, uh, an outcry about it. A very interesting and a very astute point at the end. Maybe there wouldn't have been as much of an outcry if uh, the J. Craig Venter Institute had have framed their experiment in a different way, presented it to the public in a different way so that they didn't really uh, hype the synthetic life side of the experiment and just put it in more scholarly terms. Maybe the people wouldn't have been so excited about this and maybe all of this talk about synthetic biology in recent years wouldn't have really uh, evolved the way it has. And that's an interesting point because that is very much the point of a lot of the things that we've been looking at in today's episode, for example, when we start looking at the, just the way that this information is presented can really affect and influence the way people think about it. So that when uh, Henry Kissinger talks in his, his deep bi- professorial voice about how there's no difference between the left and the right on the phony political paradigm, then, well, that just sounds perfectly logical and reasonable and nothing to get interested in or upset about. But uh, but when you actually stop and think about what he's saying, it's it's incredibly marvelous. It's incredible that he's talking about that. But uh, but the, again, you can put the most extraordinary things in the most ordinary language in order to conceal what's really going on. So that is an important point that's being made there at the end of that clip. And uh, I think we can demonstrably see that the the speaker is applying that to himself as well in his own presentation, because we can see the way the entire way that he frames this bioethics debate about synthetic biology in itself really limits what it is we can discuss. So that, for example... When, when he says, well, yes, there may be moral arguments, there may be religious arguments, there may be things that have some validity to them that, that, uh, that mean that we shouldn't be doing this because it is somehow morally wrong, it is ethically uh, dubious, we shouldn't be doing this. Well, but that doesn't matter because all we, we care about, all this mat- that matters really is, well, what does this mean in terms of the policy debate about bioethics and what should be legislated? So by framing the debate in that way and saying, well, this sh- should really only be about what kind of things can we propose that the government should legislate about, then it removes the entire debate, really, because then it doesn't have anything to do with ethics. All it has to do with is policy positions and white papers and, and recommending what government should come in and do or not do. And once you frame the debate in that way, then you're right. You can completely talk, remove any discussion of, of, of a soul or, or whatever other aspects might come into this type of debate. So by simply phrasing it in a certain way, framing the debate in that way, he can actually control the course of that debate. And if you bring up other types of objections, then he might just say, well, yes, that, that may, may or not be, may not be true. I'm not going to talk with you about that. Why don't we just talk about what this means in terms of the policy debate? And uh, once again, I think that's an extremely important point about the entire bioethics agenda and the way that it functions, because of course, these bioethicists are not merely talking to themselves. That would be one thing. They are very much involved, deeply involved in some cases, in proposing and making proposals and sitting on boards of government uh, bodies that are then setting the legislation. So you and I aren't sitting at that table having the discussion with uh, with what the government should or shouldn't be doing uh, with our bodies but, uh, but these bioethicists certainly are. So once again, when you start investigating their background and find that they're all eugenicists, 
maybe that should be something of concern, and maybe that should be something we, we start talking about as a society and drawing more attention to. So once again, let's keep listening to the enemy on that point, and uh, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a better organization to start exploring, since I don't see anyone else anywhere in the alternative media exploring it, than, than something like the Hastings Center. But on that note, let's move along. Still tons of information to go through. So let's let's set up the next clip. We're going to listen to a speech that was given by Dennis Meadows on perspectives on the limits of growth. Now, perhaps some of the more informed listeners in the audience will already know where this is heading because limits to growth refers to the classic 1972 book by none other than the Club of Rome that was talking all about how the earth is overpopulated, we're running out of resources, and we're all going to die grisly deaths unless we drastically reform the way we live. And uh, yes, that was uh, that came out 40 years ago this year. So there's a big year-long, I guess, celebration of this uh, this new neo-eugenic austerity measure book that uh, that came out that was touting the imminent collapse of society, which which kind of failed to happen. But let's uh, let's disregard that and let's continue hyping this up. So people might remember from earlier this week on Corporate Report Radio, I pointed to an interesting article: "Next Great Depression?" Question mark MIT study predicting global economic collapse by 2030 still on track. And of course, referencing that limits to growth, the book by the Club of Rome. So of course, just something to keep our eye on this year as they continue hyping this up. And as part of those festivities, we have this 40th anniversary uh, summit that really took place uh, at the Smithsonian that the Club of Rome was putting on and featuring such speakers as Dennis Meadows, one of the co-authors of that book. And uh, it's an interesting speech for a number of different reasons. He gets into the idea of sustainable development and how it's already too late to really implement it. We have to drastically reform everything we're doing, but no one seems to be willing to do that for some reason. So he berates everyone a little bit for that. He also tries to defend the fact that limits to growth has all failed to come true, all of its uh, dire predictions and warnings about the imminent collapse of the world as we know it, by saying, oh, it was just blown out of proportion by the media, and oh, we didn't really say all that uh, that dire warning stuff. There was lots of different ways that we predicted things could pan out, but but the media picked up on the, uh, the hype and alarmism. We weren't trying to spread that, etc., etc. I'll let you go and listen to the entire thing for yourself come to your own conclusions as always please uh please do check into these uh documents of course everything found on the documentation section for today's episode and if you're listening at the current time index you'll find a link to the uh the full speech by dennis meadows on this limits to growth book but let's listen to a just a segment of this speech where i think uh, mr meadows makes a particularly interesting point a particularly important point in a very interesting way Uh, 40 years ago, I stood up and presented a question. How can global society organize itself to provide a just, peaceful, equitable, decent living uh, for its people? Now, after 40 years, finally, the question is starting to be considered seriously. But I'm apprehensive. I have to say that although the question is still important, the answer is different than it was 40 years ago. 40 years ago, it was still theoretically possible to slow things down and come to an equilibrium. Now that's no longer possible. And as you'll see from the gist of my remarks today, what lies ahead is a period of uncontrolled decline which will bring us to some new equilibrium, many of whose features we're not able to
to perceive yet. The theme of this conference is absolutely essential. We do need absolutely to understand the nature of a sustainable planet and we need to do everything in our power to prepare for it. But the path to it is going to be different. And I'm apprehensive because when I speak the truth, it tends to be easy for people to become pessimistic and resigned or simply to label me as a lunatic and reject the message uh, totally. You'll see in about another half hour whether I have managed to learn how to speak these things and leave you with some sense of mastery and optimism because those are the appropriate sentiments. Uh, but mastery and optimism need to be coupled with a realistic understanding of what lies ahead. Now before I get into my uh, formal remarks, I'd like to lead you through a very quick exercise which is a metaphor for much of what I want to say today. So I have to ask you to please put down all your stuff. And even the people out there in video land uh, can do this. Cross your arms. Look down and see which wrist is on top. Okay, drop your arms. Great. Now cross your arms and look down and see which wrist is on top. So, of course, we're in a scientific center. I'm going to do now a piece of empirical research. Everyone who had the same wrist up both times, raise your hand. So, me too. And those of you who are out there watching this on the web, you should know that virtually everybody in the audience raised their hand. So we all tend to cross our arms the same way. Which suggests, I suppose, that there's an optimum. So let's see what it is. Everyone who raised their right, or had their right wrist up both times, raise your hand. Everyone who had your left wrist up both times, raise your hand. Ah, it's about 50-50. So it means you can do it either way. But you get into the habit of doing it one way, and that's the way you, you, you keep. And this is, of course, totally appropriate. One crosses your arms when you want to do something that don't require your arms. And it would be really stupid to sit there for 10 minutes trying to figure out what to do with your arms when you actually want to be doing something else. So you adopt a habit, and it works for you. Growth is like that. We have, over the last couple centuries, adopted a set of habits uh, which range from the nature of our financial system to the indicators we choose for success to the norms that we import, impart to our uh, descendants and so forth. We have a whole set of, very elaborate set of habits that we've developed and they've been very successful. But sometimes circumstances change and now the circumstances have changed and we need to develop new habits. And I'm going to give you practice. Cross your arms the other way. <laughs> what you notice is three things that are also true about our quest for a sustainable planet. Number one, it's possible Number two, you have to think about it and probably make mistakes at first. 
And number three, it's a little uncomfortable at first. Exactly those three things lie ahead for us as we try to understand how to change our policies into ones that will serve us a little better in the future. Well, in one respect, you have to give props to Dennis Meadows for following Speechmaking 101 and getting the audience involved in the speech with an interesting little activity for them to do. Certainly nothing groundbreaking. I'm sure we've all done it before. Cross your arms, try to cross them the other way. Uh, talking about habits and uh, the way that people fall into habits and not thinking about them and how, how we can get people to think about their habits and then adjust them, which uh, on one level sounds pretty boring and quotidian, but on another level, hmm, where have I heard that talk about habits before and, and, and manipulating how people live their lives. Uh, oh yeah, I remember. Quote, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. End quote. And what was the insane, crazy, mad conspiracy theorist who came up with those lines? Oh, right. It was Edward Bernays, uh, Freud's nephew and the founder of the entire field of uh, public relations and the man who literally wrote the book on propaganda in 1928, from which those lines come. So I will put the link into propaganda so you can go and read that book for yourself if you haven't yet done so, talking about the organized manipulation of the uh, habits of the masses and how that constitutes the real mechanism by which the invisible government rules over society. Once again, when you listen to the enemy, they're spelling it out in black and white. And, uh, and just because people don't tend to read uh, anymore doesn't mean that we have any excuse to be ignorant of what they've already told us in so many words, that they are ruling over you by trying to organize your habits and opinions. And that all goes back to the social engineering pioneered and really spearheaded by people like Bernays and, of course, uh, Skinner and many of the other people, characters that we've looked at at previous ed editions of this podcast and my radio show and other work. But there you go. There's an example of it. The Club of Rome and Dennis Meadows trying to tell you that you have to engage in the process of uh, learning how to refold your arms, so to speak, when we start thinking about how to change our lives so that we're living sustainably as he sits there in his three-piece suit and, uh, and in front of the uh, laptop that he's using to deliver his speech, etc., etc. Yes, yes, I'm sure he's really walking the walk. But anyway, uh, this all coming from the same Club of Rome organization that's responsible for the 1991 First Global Revolution book, which talked about how the humanity is the enemy of uh, the Club of Rome and how they have to get people to understand that and fight against humanity because uh, humanity is the problem. So they will invent a global warming alarmism scare in order to do that. Once again, no matter how many times I read that passage from the first global revolution, I always take solace in the fact that at least one person in the audience probably doesn't know about it yet. So once again, I will put that in the documentation section so you can go and read the first global revolution and how the Club of Rome admits to really creating the global warming alarmism scare to get people to hate themselves and uh and oh who's uh who else is affiliated with the club of rome you know people like uh oh, al gore and uh green crusader mikhail Gorg gorbachev and many others besides once again a very interesting organization that i think people should be aware of 
let's move along. Let's move along to more enemies, uh, yet more that are speaking openly and uh, and making their pronouncements. So let's listen to what they're talking about. Let's move to an, a speech by David Rothkopf. And this was recorded in October of 2011, and he was speaking about his uh, then forthcoming, but now I'm sure released book, Power Inc., the epic rivalry between big business and government and the reckoning that lies ahead. And for those of you not familiar with Rothkopf, uh, he came out with a very interesting book a few years ago called Superclass. Once again, they spell it out in black and white just so that you uh, you have no excuse of ignorance. Uh, they're, they're putting it right there in front of you. And Superclass was called The Global Power Elite and the World They Are Making. And, uh, and reading from a, an article I wrote back in 2008 about this book called The Process of Indoctrination, quote, It seems that a unique moment in human history is at last coming to an end. Just a few short years ago, anyone who dared talk about the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, the, Builder, the Bilderberg Group, or the Bohemian Grove as organizations through which the financial oligarchs wielded power, was dismissed with that ultimate debate-ending phrase, conspiracy theorist. Now, however, these secretive organizations and the corporate moneymen who pull their strings are finally allowing the public a glimpse behind the facade of representative democracy at the way elite institutions are really shaping global geopolitics. People are at least free to talk about how world politics are shaped by a few thousand of the ultra-wealthy and well-connected, provided, of course, those people are closely tied to Henry Kissinger and tend to think that the global government is the best way of organizing 21st century society. Happily for David Rothkopf, former director of Kissinger and Associates and unabashed globalist, his credentials make him the perfect candidate to write Superclass, a tell-all of sorts that purports to expose the new class of global elite who are able to influence the lives of millions around the world. Many of the organizations of influence cited by Rothkopf as linchpin institutions in this global superclass system are already well known to those researchers who have long claimed precisely the same thing as Rothkopf, but whose work has gone unheralded because of that blacklist conspiracy theorist label, end quote. Again, you can continue reading that article for more about that process of indoctrination and how the, uh, the, uh, the globalists can come out and openly talk about what they're saying. But if you so much as dare to paraphrase what they've already said, well, then you're a crazy conspiracy theorist. I think we all know how that works by now. So let's uh, let's turn to this uh, Rothkopf uh, roundtable lecture that he was giving back in October 2011, talking about various issues. Let's see what he's interested in these days. We came out of 70 years of, of, of two extreme views, a communist view, which was the state is everything, and a capitalist view, particularly in the United States, where markets were really you know, the drivers and the best thing to do would be to leave it to the markets. And, and we thought we had reached the end of history when that was over. That was the you know, title of a book in any event. And so the theory was that you know, perhaps we had won, the American way would triumph. Um, that you know, a liberal, small l, you know, philosophy, you know, was was going to prevail, um, and that isn't what happened. In the course of the past twenty years, we've gone from the competition between communism and capitalism to a new kind of competition, and the new competition is between different kinds of capitalism. So you've got five or six different kinds of capitalism that are out there in the world that each have a different balance between public and private power. So you've got American capitalism, but you've, you find it's kind of an outlier in terms of the assumption about the role of the government, 
the priority of community over individual uh, and so forth. And then you've got others, European capitalism, and I'm quick to note that there is a distinction between Northern European capitalism and Southern European capitalism because in Northern European capitalism you can have um, uh, uh, big strong social safety nets, um, uh, uh, you know, what we would call welfare states in some respects, and highly competitive economies with balanced budgets um, that constantly are topping the lists of the highest standard, uh, highest quality of life in the world. Um, uh, and I, by the way, had a piece in the New York Times a week ago, Sunday, which dealt with this quality of life issue. Um, and oh, oh, set it around. So, so, so that's it, you know that's one kind. You've got what you might call Chinese capitalism, uh, which is 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 you know some people call it state capitalism, authoritarian. Or, you know, I mean there there are a lot of there are a lot of different names, but it's got a much bigger, more pronounced role for the state in it and state enterprises. You've got um, what you might call uh, uh, democratic development capitalism, countries like India and Brazil, uh, which uh, have somewhat different characteristics. You might call entrepreneurial small state capitalism, Singapore, Israel, Chile, countries that take advantage of being small and really sort of set industrial policies to be competitive. You might want to set aside Japan and Korea as a slightly different model, but the point is they're different models and the United States is the outlier. The United States as, as an approach that leaves um, the, you know, the, 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 in terms of the deference that we pay to the private sector in terms of our view, I mean we're in the midst of this discussion, this, uh, we're a country right now where the bottom third is falling away where 40% of black children live in poverty, where the dropout rate in, in urban uh, high schools is 50%, the dropout rate for black and Hispanics in high school is 50%, where there is no middle class option for people who drop out of high school as there once was 30 years ago, where we haven't created a net new job in 11 years, where we haven't invested in infrastructure in 50 years in a serious way in the United States. Um, uh, where we are the only developed country um, in the world uh, not to have a national health care program to provide people with that kind of security, et cetera, et cetera. We, we clearly have a social crisis in the United States. And yet, if you listen to the discussion last night, there is still a very substantial group of people in the United States who think the solution to that is less government. You know, it's not, to, not to have programs there. Whereas anywhere else in the world, that would not be the solution. So we are clearly the outlier. We are also, of course, a country that used to be the, or was still the most powerful and, and richest country in the world, but is seeing the economic center of gravity shift. Um, and within 10, 12, 15 years, depending on how you're counting, China will be the biggest economy in the world. Asian economies are gaining in weight. And the intellectual center of gravity of the world is shifting. Now, I'm not saying that the ultimate model is going to be the Chinese model. I think ultimately we'll end up with something a little more sort of Singaporean or European. Um, no caning. Don't, don't worry about that. But I'm, I'm, talking about, um, I'm, t I'm talking about, you know, in terms of the role of the state. And, and our influence in this debate is, 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 is changing, in part because the system that we have here has become so discredited because it is so out of whack.
because the few benefit so much and there seems to be such disregard for everybody else. And in part because I think we're underestimating the consequences of that. That we are at a moment where the unrest that we see in the streets may look like a happy prelude compared to where we're going. Because if you disenfranchise people, what happens if you are in that 50% who drop out? In 1950, if you dropped out of high school, you go get a job at the GM factory, have a decent life, have a middle-class life, have opportunity for your children. If you drop out of high school now, you are destined to live in poverty. You will not compete with people from these other places in the world. You probably will not have social programs. And there will be substantial unrest in the United States, I think, as a consequence of all of this. Once again, yet another interesting little speech from one of these globalist stooges that seems perfectly reasonable on one hand. It certainly seems to all follow from one point for, from, to another in quite a logical fashion. So, so we see Mr. Rothkopf pointing out quite, quite rightly, I think, the, the incredible wealth disparity in, in America and, and all sorts of uh, real social, social ills that are taking place right now in, in the United States, supposedly the, the beacon of freedom for the world and supposedly the, the, the greatest economy in the world, et cetera, et cetera. How can it be that it's reached this point of collapse? And well, it's just such an outlier when it comes to uh, looking at the way that, uh, that we resolve this big business and government dispute, How, who should have the, uh, the, those, their hands on the levers of power and to what extent, etc., etc., the epic rivalry that he's talking about in his book. And so we can look at different ways that this question has been answered by different societies. So you might look at the Chinese model or you might look at the European model and he he's, puts his uh, hat in the ring as being a supporter more of the Scandinavian type uh, these wonderful socialist utopias that uh, that have developed in these uh, Scandinavian countries that have the highest quality of life, etc., etc., and people are happy to pay their their exorbitant taxes because it's all for the betterment of humanity, etc. So that is what Rothkopf is arguing. But and again, it all sounds reasonable. Well, certainly there are huge problems in the U.S. right now. We all understand this. That's why there's so much unrest and so much more is likely, as he points to at the end. But once again, it resolves. It all revolves around framing the debate in a way in which his his ideas come out on top, and it's uh, it's easy to do that when you say that the debate is between big business or government. Which one should have more power, and how should they wield that power, and how should the people relate to that power struggle, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, how about what could it be possible to imagine a world where it's not big multinational corporations versus these big government institutions that are supposed to somehow keep them in check, or vice versa, or whatever way you want to frame that debate? How about saying, well, how about neither option for me, thanks? How about we go to a voluntarist society, just for example, where we don't have have big businesses or governments or the big businesses that exist aren't given uh, corporate personhood and all of the other legal fictions that are created in a, a government-sanctioned uh, legal infrastructure that would exist in such a society. Can we even imagine that type of debate as opposed to going with the, the last 400 years of uh, the way that we've been shoehorned into this, this structure of having these corporations uh, that are gradually growing in power versus the nation-states that are supposed to keep them in check? So once again, it is just a false dilemma that he's proposing and uh, and once again I think we can be led down false uh, blind paths and and blind alleys because uh, because we are just tend to accept debates the way that they're framed instead of looking at the underlying logic and questioning that 
I'll leave that there now for now, but uh, but just on the note of David J. Rothkopf and what he really thinks about you and me and uh, anyone else who isn't part of his little superclass elite club, uh, you can go to an interesting foreign policy article he wrote back in 2009 called Land of the Free, Home of the Stupid, in which he basically uh, shows just how much he absolutely hates and despises the vast majority of the American public and uh, and probably most of the people in the world, truth be told. But I'm sure he has a little bit of special hatred in his heart for Americans, and uh, you can go and read all his vitriol there. And on another note, I would wholeheartedly point people to his 2008 conversation with Alex Jones. Again, I'll put the link in the uh, the, the show notes where uh, it's just an incredible conversation. They go through so much, and uh, I really think Alex is at his best when he's confronting these globalists. He's a very sharp thinker, and he doesn't let them get away with their mealy-mouthed political platitudes. He really, really presses the point home. And I think he's the clear winner in the debate, but uh, once again, maybe I'm, I'm biased on that point. But but go and take a listen to it. A very, very interesting conversation about superclass and, and all the implications of that work. But finally, let's move on to our final uh, well, set of clips that come from uh, the final thing that we'll be looking at today. And we're going to listen to a little bit from a Revell Forum lecture that was presented at UCSD at the Neurosciences Institute. And this was posted up on the UC Television YouTube channel back in January of 2008. And it's a one-hour-long interview conversation with our old friend David Rockefeller, Grandson of J.D. Rockefeller the uh, the first the the founder of the Rockefeller dynasty and and this this wonderful old man who's done so much for the betterment of humanity through the Rockefeller Foundation etc. So yes, of course, clearly I think for anyone who's listened to this podcast for any length of time understands that Rockefeller is very much part of the the enemy class that we're that we're examining today. But uh, but once again, it's important to understand that if this if we are framing it in this way, and, and again, this is just a frame in and of itself, and and by all means, p- feel free to question it. The idea that it's an enemy, it's a it's a war of some sort, which brings with it all sorts of other connotations, which uh, which you can interrogate on your own uh, at your own leisure. But even if we frame it that way, it's important to understand that one of the first casualties in war is always truth, and uh, one of the truths that is often that casualty is the truth that. The enemy is still human. The enemy is a human. It is humanity. It is uh, dehumanizing the enemy is always the way that that wars are perpetuated and are sold to the public so that if we can just get those, uh, get the people to be scared of those bearded, uh, turban-wearing people on that far side of the planet, then who cares if we're bombing the hell out of them and killing families and all of that? It, It doesn't matter. They're just the enemy. They're not humans. They don't deserve anything. Well, in the same way, I mean, we run into that trap if we start positing things in those terms, that this is the enemy, the globalists are the enemy that we are fighting, we can dehumanize them. And there are all sorts of ways that that's done. But uh, but one, one way is just to make caricatures of these people instead of actual human beings. So there are a lot of people out there who I'm sure are familiar with David Rockefeller and some of the things that the Rockefeller family have been involved with. And, uh, and some people may have gone into some depth of research about the Rockefeller Foundation and the Rockefeller Institute and the uh, Rockefeller University and all of the various branches of the what the the Rockefellers have perpetuated in the name of their philanthropy. But uh, I would venture to say that few of us, including myself, I won't dis- discount myself from this, few of us have really done a lot of research into the into the biography, the personal history of people like David Rockefeller, so that, uh, so that we at least understand who this person is, where he comes from, and the fact that he is just another person who puts his pants on one leg at a time. And if we, uh, if, if we start to make a caricature out of people like this, then, then that's when we start to get into that mindset that somehow 
somehow these are super elite human beings or, or reptoids or whatever you want to get into with with that type of stuff that that these people are somehow so utterly different from normal human beings that, that there's no way to comprehend what they're doing and that leads into all sorts of thinking about how well this elite has always existed and they always will and they're all powerful and they're behind everything every time someone slips on a banana peel and I think that ultimately is a self-defeating argument and I think I will get into that more in future editions of this podcast but at any rate let's listen to a little bit of this conversation at the beginning where the uh, the professor Michael Parrish who is interviewing David Rockefeller on the occasion of the publication of his memoirs it starts with an introduction about Rockefeller and his life. And I'm willing to bet that if you're like me, there were at least a few things in this introduction, just talking about the biography and the background of David Rockefeller that you probably didn't know before. So it's probably worth our while to at least take a listen and try to discover a little bit more about David Rockefeller and his background. So let's listen to that introduction. Well, this is surely one of those rare occasions when a host can legitimately say that our guest, of course, requires no introduction. But for the benefit of those here who may not be members of the GI generation or of the boomer generation, permit me at least to make a brief introduction. David Rockefeller was born in 1915 in New York City, the youngest of six children, one daughter and five sons of John D. Rockefeller Jr. and Abby Aldrich Rockefeller. Often on roller skates, shadowed by a chauffeured limousine, he attended the Lincoln School of Columbia University's Teachers College for 12 years. His teachers there thought him a slow learner, a condition diagnosed later in life as dyslexia, a disability that also afflicted three of his siblings. During these youthful years, he also acquired an extensive collection of beetles, by erecting at night a sheet illuminated with a light on the porch of his family estate in Westchester County. <laughs> he graduated from Harvard College in 1936 with a degree in English history and literature. After postgraduate study at Harvard and the London School of Economics, he earned his PhD in economics from the University of Chicago in 1940. His doctoral thesis, Unused Business Resources and Economic Waste was published by the University of Chicago Press. In 1940, shortly after receiving his PhD, he went to work at $1 a year as the secretary to New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. And there he immediately put the theory of his doctoral thesis to work and won the admiration of his honor by finding tenants for the undeveloped commercial space at the city's new airport that had been named for the mayor. <laughs> that summer, he married Peggy McGrath, and that was a bond that would last for 56 years until her death in 1996. They would have four daughters, two sons, and 10 grandchildren. In March of 1942, Mr. Rockefeller enlisted in the United States Army as a private and began basic training at Fort Jay on Governor's Island, where he found that playing baseball was far more stressful than all of the close order drills. A year later, he entered engineer OCS school, followed by for, former, a further training at the Military Intelligence School at Fort Ritchie, Maryland. For the remainder of the Second World War, he served in both North Africa and France, including eight months as an assistant military attache in Paris, 
and he was awarded by the French government the Legion of Honor before his discharge as a captain in 1945. In 1946, he joined the Chase Bank, soon to be known as the Chase Manhattan Bank, as a lowly assistant manager in the Foreign Department at the munificent salary of $3,500 a year. He commuted to work each morning on the Lexington Avenue subway. And during the next 35 years, 11 of them as chairman and CEO, he transformed the Chase Bank from a somewhat, if you'll excuse the expression, dowdy, conservative domestic institution into an international financial powerhouse. And simultaneously, he emerged as one of the world's most influential and often controversial banking leaders. Three times, he would decline a presidential invitation to become Secretary of the Treasury. And once, he would decline the post as the head of the Federal Reserve Board. From 1950 to 1975 as chairman of Rockefeller University and later as the head of its executive committee, he presided over the transformation of that institution into perhaps the premier center of cell biology in this country and the world. During most of the 1980s, he served as chairman of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, a major grant-making organization that he and his brothers first created in 1940. Continuing a tradition begun by his mother, Mr. Rockefeller has played a significant role in the long and glorious history of New York's Museum of Modern Art, where he has served as a trustee since 1948. For 15 years, beginning in 1970, he was also the chairman of the Council of Foreign Relations. He is the past president of Harvard College's Board of Overseers and a life trustee of the University of Chicago, founded by his grandfather. He has left his imprint on urban redevelopment projects from Lower Manhattan to San Francisco's Embarcadero and Lafont Plaza in our nation's capital. Renoir's Gabriel at the Mirror once hung in his living room. Three of Monet's water lilies graced his stairwell at Hudson Pines. He has been described as one of America's greatest business leaders and philanthropists. He's also been described as the chairman of the board of America's ruling class. He has been pilloried regularly by the left and by the right for dancing with dictators and for conspiring to enslave the nation to the machinations of the Trilateral Commission. Random House has recently published his memoirs, a volume written with much clarity and a great deal of candor about himself and his family. Will you please join with me in welcoming David Rockefeller. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Well, as much of a whitewash as that introduction and as, in fact, the entire conversation ends up being, it's still interesting to know some of those those points. And uh, once again, it can't can't hurt us to to at least listen to to details about this and try to understand it a little bit more, including details about David Rockefeller's life. But there you go. And it, again, this does end up being a whitewash in so many ways, as you would expect. And of course, uh, lo- launching the, the softball questions and then listening to basically the official Rockefeller family story, all capital letters and uh, trademark uh, b- b- beside the, those words. I, I mean, if anyone who's watched, for example, the, the Rockefellers, the, that PBS special that we referred to back in an earlier episode of this podcast way, way, way back in the day, uh, anyone who's seen that, for 
for example, knows basically what the official Rockefeller family story is and the different parts of it and and how uh, how they whitewash various parts of it. Again, we've gone over that in our earlier episode on Meet the Rockefellers, so I would direct people there if they haven't heard it before. But uh, but once again, I mean, it's it a lot of that happens. But there are some interesting points that, that still continue to manage to be raised in this. So I, I would direct people to the conversation. Again, it doesn't hurt to 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 listen to this and find out at least what the official story on various uh, parts of the Rockefeller background are. And uh, let's listen to, for example, a clip of uh, Rockefeller explaining how he yeah okay palled around with the Shah of Iran and you know kind of uh, you know lobbied for him and and made sure he got to safety after the Iranian Revolution. But, but, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's all perfectly explainable. One of the other uh, controversial events in your life, of course, concerns the Shah of Iran and, and the revolution that occurred in Iran. In your, in your memoirs, you, you argue the point of view that had President Carter and his advisors been a trifle more decisive about admitting the Shah very early uh, from his exile, that this might have alleviated the later crisis that occurred and that it was that indecisiveness that may have led to the taking of the hostages in Tehran and that really your influence and that of say Mr. Kissinger's has been vastly overrated by those who have looked at that particular crisis. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Um, Essentially, uh, yes, but let me uh, let me give you a little more of the the background on it. Uh, President Carter uh, went to, to visit the Shah on a trip and had dinner with him. Uh, <coughs> oh, this was on New Year's of the year that he was subsequently removed. And at that dinner, he, he broadcast around the world a speech in which he said the United States has never had a greater friend than the Shah of Iran and uh, that we, the two countries were very close together and it was just a, a, a very, very strong and positive speech. Um, I found having his having said that and presumably meant it when he said it uh, to when the Shah for reasons that were not directly related to uh, that incident or or, uh, anything that uh, was related to uh, what uh, Carter knew at the time um, was removed um, I felt that, and so did Henry Kissinger, who also know him and worked with me on this, we worked together, uh, we felt that um, at the very least he should be invited to, to, find, uh, to find refuge in the United States, or if we didn't do that, that at least the United States should help him because he had been a good friend. And more than that, uh, and this is an aside, uh, the Shah, uh, during his period of office, uh, had enormously expanded the educational system in Iran and the health system. And the um, country was far better off and the people in the country were far better off than when he came. So that although there's no question that uh, he did have secret police that probably tortured people and did a lot of things that were bad, um, 
It also was true that the, his successor governments, uh, they may have tortured different people, but they tortured just as many, and in my judgment, were just as bad. So uh, I felt that um, even though uh, perhaps it was justified that he leave office, and this of course was due to a whole series of other things, uh, that uh, the United States owed him uh, help and we not only didn't allow him in the country, but the, but the government didn't do anything to help him find another spot. So that literally, um, uh, Henry Kissinger and I and two or three other people helped him find a place first in the Bahamas and then in Mexico, uh, and then finally, um, persuaded President Carter to let him in when he, it turned out that he had cancer and uh, needed uh, uh, help from, a, from the point of view of uh, his health. So that he did finally come, but it seemed to me that uh, this was a succession of events that uh, was not, did not speak well for our country. Oh, yes. Oh, how admirable of Mr. Rockefeller to overlook little, tiny little niggly details like, oh, Savak and the, the security forces that tortured people in brutal ways and the horrible oppression of the Shah of Iran's regime. Oh, but at the end of the day, I mean, America owed it to, to him to, to keep him uh, safe and to, to let him in. I, I don't know why, but they owed it to him because he once said that the U.S. was his partner or something like that. Um, an interesting little telling part of the conversation, if you ask me, and it raises to mind some of the other interesting associations that Rockefeller had in his career, like his his meeting with Saddam Hussein, which you can go and watch him explain on YouTube, or uh, his 1974 ode to Chairman Mao in the New York Times, the uh, the the little obituary he wrote where he called Chi the Chinese Revolution uh, under Mao the most important and successful revolution of our times because uh, killing 60 million people in the name of the craziness of uh, Maoism was absolutely just the best possible thing that could happen in to humanity, according to Rockefeller. And uh, Rockefeller ties to China are particularly interesting in how he paved the way for the, the uh, broaching of the relations between the U.S. and China in the 70s, the normalization. All of that uh, extremely, extremely interesting. And of course, absolutely none of it raised by the interviewer in this interview, which is clearly not meant to bring up any issues of any substance or getting into them in any detail. But still, as I say, some interesting parts of this conversation. So let's just listen to one more final clip, just one tiny part of this conversation coming towards the end, where he asks him about the best mayor of New York City during David Rockefeller's lifetime. With apologies to James Lipton at the Actors Studio, let me ask you a few little short, quick questions. Who was the greatest mayor of New York City in your lifetime? Um, until maybe a year or two ago, I think I would have said Fiorella LaGuardia without any question. Um, I do think that the, that the way that Mayor Giuliani handled the tragedy of the Trade Center uh, was so skillful and so good that uh, it, have to, it has to lift his position to a very high one. Uh, the, the strange thing is that, that before that happened, um, 
I had worked with him a certain amount and seen him a certain amount. I thought he was doing an adequate and good job, but um, I don't believe anybody recognized the qualities that he showed in that terrible episode. So that uh, uh, his stock has to go way up, whether it goes ahead of Fiorello LaGuardia, I think history will tell. Oh, that Mayor Giuliani's stock rose with the Rockefellers after 9-11 is something that I have absolutely no doubt about. (sighs) Interesting. Well, again, a lot to be made of that. And once again, as with this clip and as with every clip that we've listened to so far today, it's always painful to just try to pick out bits and pieces of these conversations that really do deserve to be seen in their full context. Lots of very, very interesting things in all of the clips that we've listened to today. And so I would suggest you go and make use of the uh, the links that I provided in the show notes for today's episode. Once again, you can find the documentation, the links to all of these conversations in their full context. So you can go and watch them for yourself and start this process of, uh, of listening to the enemy. And once again, I mean, let's not necessarily phrase it in those terms, but uh, it might just be a colorful way to, to talk about what we're doing. But we really are engaging in that in that debate, I suppose, that that is being framed around us. And uh, they're trying to put it in their words and in their frame. And we have to question that at all times, as we've seen throughout today's episode. And on that note, we will wrap things up here. But as I hope you can tell, an incredible amount of research goes into this uh, podcast, including, of course, today's episode with hours and hours and hours and hours of supplemental things for you to explore in the documentation notes. So if you do appreciate this research and the way I'm putting it together, and this is a vital and important resource for you, then I suggest A, that you let other people know about it, and B, if you are able to, if you want to support the work that I'm doing, then of course, either become a subscriber to the Corbett Report uh, e-newsletter, and once again, that's as little as 100 Japanese yen per month, or buy a DVD and help support what I'm doing, and get yourself a little tool that you can create copies of and spread to others to help raise awareness of these issues. Without your support, I couldn't do it. So once again, thank you so much to all the people who are subscribers and or have bought a DVD. And on that note, let's leave it there for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me for this week's edition of The Corbett Report and asking you to join me again next week.